0: The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome everybody. U.S. stocks log their second straight weekly rise after a strong job sprint while Chinese shares reverse early gains despite hints of more stimulus from Beijing. The UK Prime Minister calls for continued cross-party talks to break the Brexit deadlock and warns voters Parliament must agree on a deal to leave the EU before the latest deadline this Friday.
1: The choice that lies ahead of us is either leaving the European Union with a deal or not leaving at all. Now I think, the government thinks, we absolutely must leave the European Union. We must deliver Brexit.
2: President Trump revises attack on the Federal Reserve, calling on the central bank to cut rates and start quantitative easing. While top White House officials say the prospective Fed board nominations for Herman Kane and Stephen Moore are on track. Nissan shareholders vote to oust former chairman Carlos Ghosn as director, cutting the company's final ties with the embattled auto boss. It was payrolls Friday and the market seeing enough in the headline number and also the average hourly earnings to uh, tick stocks north We saw green bouncing across on the boards. uh, Enough that it's almost a Goldilocks scenario that the numbers uh, are not weak enough perhaps to trigger recession, but also maybe not strong enough to prompt further rate hikes. So the market getting enough in the data after what has been somewhat thorny series. Investors watching uh, the inverted yield curve, trying to piece some of the data into the equation to work out what type of US economy we are facing. And you can see uh, in session it was certainly a supportive one for stocks. Investors now looking forward to more data this week on inflation but also earnings and that's been where one of the other concerns has been for many investors whether we're now facing a retreat in earnings a pullback after very strong numbers and it'll be the banks that will be watching this week but when it comes to the market action for the Dow the highest level we saw on the markets since October 2018 the Nasdaq uh, Russell 2000 small cap stocks on track for their sixth positive session in seven and as they closed out the week uh, 14 positive weeks for the Nasdaq if you're looking at uh, how strong we have had in terms in terms of uh, market activity for tech stocks, uh, it has certainly been an area of concentration for many investors. But by overall sectors, I think too, if you're looking elsewhere, you saw uh, materials uh, in session. Uh, leading one of uh, leading the charge by sectors uh, posting its best week of 2019. So you did see a lot of action in that part of the market and energy as well. But let me take you to the banks because I want to show you a couple of big names as we set up the earnings season later on this week. Investors closely eyeing what the numbers will look like from the banking sector. Don't forget we've had an interesting start to the year. First quarter has been a stronger one for stocks after the sell off late last year. But, uh, investors have been a little bit concerned about client activity, so uh, what the investment banks report this week will be very key. Uh, in terms of the overall numbers with JP Morgan, it uh, did see over the course of one week a strong gain, about 6 tenths of 1% in session, a slight retreat is what we had. And JP Morgan will be one of the first banks to report, along with Wells Fargo on Friday. We're going to take you to Goldman Sachs over the course of one week, uh, much stronger print. Uh, you can see uh, trading up by about to just over 2.8%. And Citigroup, but to complete the picture as well, Citigroup stock uh, by comparison, you can see trading up by just over 1.8%, although slight fade in session. So uh, we will see what the market does with the information this week, whether it is weak, whether it does reflect some uh, problems in the trading business, or whether it still holds up.
0: Yeah, what an extraordinary week to have to think about <laughs> buying banks at this point, given what Donald Trump is saying about the Federal Reserve. The president increased pressure on the Fed, once again, urging the central bank to lower interest rates and start QE. Speaking to reporters at the White House, Trump praised the strength of the US economy after strong job status saying the country is, quote, doing unbelievably well. But he said the Fed should cut rates to help ease pressure on the economy. Trump also called on the central bank to renew an Obama-era stimulus programme known as QE. I personally think uh, the Fed should drop rates. I think they really slowed us down. There's no inflation. I would say in terms of quantitative tightening, it should actually now be quantitative easing well, president Trump talking about QE. Meanwhile, White House Economic adviser Larry Kudlow defended the President's plan to name political allies to seats on the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. Kudlow said the President stands behind economic commentator Stephen Moore and former presidential candidate Herman Cain, adding the President has, quote, every right in the world to pick a person who shares his beliefs. Neither Cain or Moore have been formally nominated, and both picks would require Senate confirmation. Kane, who has faced sexual harassment allegations, said he expects increased scrutiny, while Moore has also been asked to produce documents related to his tax filings. Both men would be expected to back the president's calls for easier monetary policy despite previously speaking out against this approach in the past.
2: U.S. employment growth hit a 17-month high in March, helping ease fears of a slowdown in the world's largest economy. 196,000 jobs were added during the month, beating expectations. However, wage growth slowed to 3.2%. Simon Derrick joins us. Chief Currency Strategist at BNY Mellon. Nice to see you this morning, morning, Simon. Simon. It's an interesting set of data that we had as we closed up Friday. Not weak enough to suggest a recession is coming. And is that enough to change some of those very dovish expectations out there in the market now?
3: I doubt it. um, I mean, uh, you're right. Those numbers were perfectly fine. There's nothing in there that you would possibly think would lead you to become overly concerned about where we are with uh, the economy. So but, we can put
2: um, those rate-cutting fears, then put them but, aside. We're not going to get a rate cut. But, this but, year.
3: but I think the one thing you absolutely have to say is that the, the messaging from the Fed has been pretty unambiguous over the course of the last few months. Um, they clearly looked at what happened at the end of last year when we have this, what looks an awful lot like the end of 2007. In terms of what markets were doing and reacted accordingly. I know whether you think that's appropriate or not that the Fed should be following what markets are doing rather than what the economy is doing is a rather different issue. I mean I tend to have a, somewhat of a concern about a Fed push for markets but I doubt given the signalling they've sent us so far that's going to radically shift, that thing. What
2: about what the yield curve is signalling? The inverted yield curve, some say, well, you know, let's just put this down to the fact we've got, got all this buying by central banks. It's sort of skewing the curve. Uh, we probably need to watch it a little bit, but it's not, not signalling so much as it has in the past. And others are saying, well, there are lots of excuses in the past too for what the yield curve was suggesting. Uh, there was all sorts of intervention by commercial bank purchases, the collapse of the dot-com bubble. Uh, bubble was one other reason that's been cited in the past for, you know, trying to ignore the yield curve, but yet the yield curve has signalled a recession. So this time round, do you think the yield curve is signalling a recession?
3: It might be. I think it's the simple answer so Look, again, we come back to the way the world looked when the Fed took this, was taking the stimulus away. It looks an awful lot like the, 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 what the markets look like at the start of the big two turndowns in the last two decades. Um, and there are other things out there that does that warning signs. Look at shipping costs, for example. Look at transportation. All tell you about a world where there is a slowdown taking place. Yes, it could be that it is signaling a recession. Yes, it is something that maybe we should be taking a warning sign of. But as I said, other things in the economy do look more positive. So it feels to me still as though this is a Fed that's more worried about markets than the economy.
0: What was interesting, the the initial reaction, just to pick up from um, Karen's starting point on on the jobs, was that both the dollar and yields moved lower, and yet as the traders began to mull the combination of strong jobs, uh, weak wages, they then decided to bid the dollar up here. Now, is that a, a, a good reflection of the way they view the potential for the Fed to become more hawkish? or is that because they can't find anything else to buy the dollar against?
3: <laughs> I, I, I think it's fascinating to look at what the dollar was doing at the end of the last week. I mean, and I think you're right, that initial negative reaction for the dollar, that felt rational given what you were seeing. Um, and then that, that the way the dollar came back, to me, that felt more about weekend risk than it felt about, it being about reflection of the numbers. I mean, going into this weekend, there were plenty of things to be concerned about not least what was happening here in the UK. And right now, the dollar is the safe haven of choice. Um, More so, perhaps, than any other period, because all these other safe haven currencies out there have got a negative yield against them. So they're incredibly expensive to buy. So when it comes to what am I going to buy that's safe and secure, I feel reasonably comfortable with over the weekend, no behold, the dollar's it.
0: Uh, They may have negative yield, but they don't have a $21 trillion uh, government debt attached to them?
3: Or does that not matter? In the long term, it absolutely does matter. And I don't think there's any question that that issue about the scale of the debt will continue to weigh in the same way that the debt issue has weighed on the dollar throughout the last 40 years. Um, But in the short term, no, it doesn't. Because I think right now what people are looking for is when when push comes to shove, you want a liquid market to be in the dollar represents Just just
0: one final one uh, before Karen comes back in. Um, What is the idiosyncratic risk in buying dollar and holding dollar here given that the President feels that it's open season to take pot shots at the Fed whenever he likes and if he gets these two governors on board, are we looking at a Fed that will be increasingly dovish and perhaps uh, starts to look a lot like the ECB or the BOJ at some point?
3: Okay, well, I I mean, the ECB has got a very different set of issues to deal with. And when it comes to the BOJ, the issue of politicisation has always been open for discussion, certainly over the course of the last six or seven years. Um, I think it's interesting to talk about politicisation. In fact, I'm a huge believer in central bank independence. I think it's been one of the best things that's happened in the last 40 years. Um, I think the interesting thing, though, is right now, would it make a huge difference if, the, if there was more influence from the Fed, from the uh, president right now, they're already dovish. They're already telling us they're worried about markets. So it seems to me that the president's already got the Fed that he wants. How much, how much more dovish can they be right now?
2: I take your And oh, as a result, we've seen other central banks take a, an either a neutral stance when they were in a, a hiking phase or others turn more dovish. So what central banks are you watching closely in the next couple of weeks for, for market moving implications?
3: Well, it feels to me that, pretty well, all the central banks have moved towards that, that idea of, of being as cautious as possible going into the summer. Um, and from that perspective, I really struggle to think whether I should be that worried about the central banks right mm-hmm. now. They all feel as though they're prepared to do whatever it takes to, to keep markets happy. So there's so, no more outliers, So aren't for there. me, it's more about what can overwhelm that. What, what idiosyncratic risks are there? out there that can truly shop markets right now. Because I actually, I do think investors are cautious. I know the irony is we've got markets that have been bid in an incredible way since the start of the year, thanks to the efforts of the Fed. But I kind of, every time I talk to investors, they kind of don't really believe it. Kind of difficult so though,
0: that, aren't they? I mean, you remember uh, what in the first few weeks of January we were saying it's the worst, w- it's the worst start to a year we've seen for markets. And then all of a sudden, things picked up through uh, the second part of January into February,
3: and we've got we've had this amazing run over yeah, the last because, three because, weeks, because, three, three months. Because people, because the central banks went have some free money. Well, yeah. it will kind of sort of tend to do that to markets when there's when there's a flood of liquidity coming in or the promise of that. But the reality is that again coming back to where we were at the end of last year it looked an awful lot like the end of 2007 and there are still those signals underneath that the market that suggest it could still be like that and i think investors are trying to work out that that difference between the markets are telling you one thing but other signals are rather more bearish
0: okay thank you simon for that stay with us it's beginning to lock look a lot like uh, more QE, isn't it, really? Chinese shares have reverse gains after signs of more stimulus in China helped lift the country's blue-chip stocks to a one-year high. Beijing said it will further loosen bank reserve requirements to encourage lending to small and medium-sized businesses. The move announced on the central government's website will be the sixth time the PBOC has cut reserve requirements over the last year.
2: The global economy has entered a synchronised slowdown which may be difficult to reverse according to data compiled by the Brookings Institution and the Financial Times. Now the latest update of their trading or tracking index showed all parts of the world's economy losing momentum, but the slowdown was not yet heading for a global recession.
0: Coming up on the programme, the Brexit deadlock continues with the UK due to leave the EU on Friday with no deal in sight so far. We'll have more from Westminster when we come back.
2: And if you just can't get enough of Box, be sure to tune into our very own podcast. Head to cnbc.com, iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play to have a listen and to download today's episode. And for our podcast listeners out there, stick around for some more. Meantime, a quick look at the opening calls as we head to break. We are seeing green arrows for most of these markets, from the DAX, the CAC, to the Italian market, the FTSE MIB. We have slight gains and a slight red arrow too for the UK market. So a little bit soft before the start of the session today.
0: We're back, everybody. Talks between the UK government and the Labour opposition party have so far failed to yield a breakthrough on Brexit, with the UK due to leave the EU on Friday. Meanwhile, UK Prime Minister Theresa May will go to Brussels this week, seeking a second delay to Brexit. The impact on the currency has been fascinating. We have vaulted between 131 and change to 130 and change, so not much reaction at all quite frankly. Let's get out to Sylvia and maybe we'll get a question to Simon on this, but um, Sylvia just walk us through what we can expect then over the next 24, 48 hours.
4: Well, good morning, Jeff. There are two big things to watch out this week. First being the cross-party talks uh, and the second, of course, the big summit in Brussels on Wednesday. But let's focus on the cross-party talks. That's the big focus in London at the stage. These began last week between the Labour Party and the, the government, of course, and there has not been a breakthrough yet. The UK government has reportedly told the Labour Party that uh, the withdrawal agreement, document that Theresa May put together with the rest of the European Union, is already a basis for a customs union. However, the Labour Party is not happy with that. They want to have clear guarantees in the second document that Theresa May negotiated with the EU, the political declaration, the basis for their future trade talks. They want that document to say specifically that the government in the UK will seek a customs union with the European Union. And so far in all this process over the last week or so, Theresa May has been criticized by some of her Tory MPs. Um, And last night she felt that she had to explain why she had to seek an alternative with the Labour Party. Let's listen in.
1: We absolutely must leave the European Union. We must deliver Brexit. That means we need to get a deal over the line. And that's why we've been looking for new ways, a new approach to find an agreement in parliament. And that means cross-party talks. And when you think about it, People didn't vote on party lines when it came to the Brexit referendum. And, you know, I I think often that members of the public want to see their politicians working together more often. Now, there's lots of things on which I disagree with the Labour Party on policy issues. But on Brexit, I think there are some things we agree on. Ending free movement, ensuring we leave with a good deal, protecting jobs, protecting security.
4: So, Theresa May has also warned that as this process strikes, this choice becomes between her deal or no Brexit at all. But let's look at what's happening on the other side of the channel across the 27 European capitals. They're going to have a very important say on Wednesday at the summit. They will have to decide whether or not they are going to extend Article 50 once again. And so far, for instance, we've heard from French officials being very critical of a second extension. They want a very good reason from the UK government in order to extend this process once again. But we've also heard from Dublin Prime Minister there saying that if there is just one country vetoing an extension then that country is not going to be forgiven. So there are a lot of things at play here. Let's see how the cross-party talks will evolve in the coming days and then of course how the 27 European capitals will react on Wednesday.
2: Sylvia, thank you very much for that. Uh, well, you know things are bad when you've got to make a video and appeal to the public, Simon. So. I'm not to is, know um, myself so far, but you is, never know. But this <laughs> is fascinating,
0: isn't it? Because um, you know, for the historians around the table, uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt kicked off the politicians' fireside chat back in 1933. It was a series of 30 radio pieces, and the first one was all about a banking crisis. So you know that politicians are desperate when they feel that they can't get the support of their own. Own party or Parliament and they have to go back to the people with this kind of cosy warm fireside approach.
3: And the cosier it is the more worrying it probably Absolutely is.
0: Absolutely. Terrifying. Yeah. Desperation. Isn't that what it says?
3: Well it does
2: to me. I, I just wonder how many takes it took to try and get the right message across. You know we're calm, we've make, got a make plan. Sure the the is, yeah. help. And yet
0: the pound sterling, ah. rock solid. 130, 131. Okay. What's going on? Right. Why, is it, why <laughs> is it the case?
3: So, Schrodinger's currency is worth either 150 or 110, depending on the outcome of Brexit, but you don't know until that happens. And so, this is
0: Schrodinger's cat, isn't it, yeah, you're talking about? It. This you is the cat in a know. box. Yeah. It may be dead, it may Maybe be alive, alive, we just don't know.
3: Until you open the box and then right. it's one or the other. And, and you're calling Brexit it Schrodinger's Pound, yeah, you? Yeah, that's it. Okay. But the reality is, is 130 is the, the, the price that says we don't know. I mean, that's the average price for the against the dollar since the, uh, the referendum in 2016, and here we are stuck to it. So that's the I don't know price. I think the problem you have is that it is entirely possible that by the end of this week we get to the point of finding out we've actually opened the box.
2: It's also the 15 to 20% chance that the markets have that there is a hard Brexit that's priced in. So effectively this level that you've got is do we go, go into the worst-case scenario cliff edge? but if you look at what everybody has been trying to do around extensions, trying to get to a deal, there seems to be appetite not to have a hard Brexit, actually to have a solution, whether it's soft or no extra or delay.
3: Well, they might, they might not want a hard Brexit, but there's an entirely reasonable chance that at the end of this week they may have to make a choice. I mean, let's just, let's just work it through very quickly. So let's just say that the talks between Labour and Conservative don't go anywhere, which so far the, the signalling is that they haven't. Let's just say there isn't an indicative vote, there's nothing scheduled to, to be in the House today. There is a perfectly reasonable chance that the Prime Minister goes to the European Council with no plan. It is entirely possible that France, Spain and possibly Belgium go no plan, no extension. And that at the end of the week we're looking at, okay, you have to make a choice and the choices are between no deal Brexit or revocation. And the, and the reality is, if you look at the voting within Parliament, it is by no means clear what would the result would actually be. Because when there was a motion put about you know, making a no deal Brexit uh, out of the question, it, it was 50-50. And when it came to would you be prepared to revoke uh, Brexit, there was very little support. So it's entirely possible that you could have a no-deal Brexit at the end of this week. It's equally possible, although it might seem surprising, that you could revoke.
0: Look, there are rarely no-brainer um, trades out there. But let me just run this by you. Um, long FTSE, long sterling one of them's going to be right. <laughs> I mean, isn't, isn't, isn't that a terrific pair's opportunity? Because that if, that it, it, be if nice. it all goes terribly wrong and we're down at 110, the FTSE is going to go through 7,500,
3: isn't I, it? I would put it a slightly different way and go back to the way the market performed on June the 24th. The FTSE got hit. It didn't get hit anywhere near as much as European markets, which were down 10 or 12%. And the thing that people probably aren't thinking about right now is the possibility of contagion. Actually, if there's any one thing I think it would be the the, the, the no-brainer here. It's about actually only volatility going into the end of the week.
2: It's a good point to turn the lens onto the European side because someone else said that to us around the European stocks that actually there's more potential for risk around a, a, a no deal yeah. Brexit for European stocks. But what about the currency? Because you've been doing a bit of soul searching around the way the euro has been trading—that yeah. is an anomaly for the last twenty years.
3: Well, well, if you think about it, the way the euro most normally performs is is simply to to yield differentials. There are points when that breaks down. It's been six or seven times, but uh, since two thousand, when that's occurred. But there's always a good reason, whether it's about uh, uh, the the asset market volatility like 2000 or whether it's about central banks diversifying the, the reserves. There's usually a sensible reason why that's the case. So why has that relationship with yield broken down since December? Well, you can come up with lots of possibilities like China growth or the Fed or whatever, but none of them really work out. The thing that actually really does come up since the start of December that really fits in with what the euro is doing is Brexit. Every single time a bad news story comes along, euro gets hit. And here we are trading in the mid-112s rather than the 115s. And I think that that reality that this is not an isolated event here in the UK is the thing that the market's slowly starting to come to understand. Contagion risk is there. Uh, go on then. Conviction call. What do I want to own? Best Dollar. currency to buy. Dollar. Dollar, by and that's dollar, because dollar. I think risk right now is probably going to head higher over the course of the next week.
0: Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more
3: market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com.
2: Or join us again on this show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.